Welcome to The Flywheel. Welcome to the first ever episode of The Flywheel Podcast. My name is Jake Singer. I've been writing The Flywheel newsletter for about five months. Each article is a deep dive into a company, a trend, or an idea, and describes its flywheel and why it matters. Lately, I've started interviewing founders about their flywheels for the newsletter, and I thought the conversations would be worth putting out there in full. And so, this podcast was born. You can read The Flywheel at theflywheel.io. Today's guest is Emmanuel Stroshnoff, the CEO and co-founder of Bubble. Bubble is a popular no-code web application builder that has been around since 2012. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Emmanuel, thank you for being here. Great to be here. I'd love to start with your introduction to Bubble, and maybe you could walk us through the, the brief origin story of how you guys came up with the idea and got started. It might take a while, you know. The company is eight years old. That's it. So what Bubble is, it's a new way to program. Today it has a name. It's called No Code. When we started, it was not called that way. But fundamentally, what it means is we enable people to build what used to require code without code. So it's a visual interface to build web applications. And in practice, people use us most of the time when they want to start a new startup or personal project, or they need some kind of web-based product for the company that we're currently working at. And instead of trying to find engineers, or which is hard, or even worse, actually uh, going to bootcamp to learn how to code because that's gonna take years, they decide to go to our tool. Depending on how tech savvy you are, it takes between you know five to 15 hours to get the basics of it. And then you can build pretty much anything without code, really. Like today, after eight years, I think we've finally got to the point where we have the critical mass of a, a number of features to tell people that, yeah, you want to build Twitter, you want to build Airbnb, turns out you can actually do it on Bubble. It takes some time, but it's much faster than code and you don't need to be technical. As of now, for, for the origin story, I mean, that, believe it or not, and I don't know if it's a sign of a success or a failure, but we haven't pivoted in any way over the last eight years. Mm -hmm. Same team, same products, same target customer. Still, you know, we started in 2012. 2012 in the US and in New York in particular was the beginning, you know, of the startup boom, right? It was Facebook went public, tech was, things have changed a little bit since then, but at that point it was really exciting to be in the tech world and a lot of people especially in New York, because in New York, you have a lot of dominant experts that are not necessarily technical. We wanted to try a new startup and a lot of ideas hadn't been explored yet. And we just felt it was a shame that all these ideas could not happen. And so we were like, look, at the end of the day, building these products like Airbnb, at first, at least, is not that complicated technically. You know, you have buyers, we have sellers, people who want to put an apartment, someone wants to rent an apartment. The challenge here is not technical. The challenge is more, how do you grow the community of people on both sides. So there has to be a better way for them to build their product without code. So that was the origin story and we stuck to that. I listened to, you did a podcast episode about a year ago with Jason Calacanis mm -hmm. and you referred to your sort of vision of Bubble as the holy grail of programming. Yep. And I thought that was just an interesting phrasing. I'm just curious, could you tell us a little bit about like why you use that phrase? Like why is this the holy grail? I would actually go further. And I would say making programming easy and accessible to everyone is a holy grail, not just programming, but technology. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about what technology was in the 70s, it was something, you know, for the experts who work in labs, you had to write, at first, you know, it was, you know, those cards, but then, you know, you would have some codes, zero and ones in labs and stuff like that, even to use a computer, not to program it. 
And then when then MS-DOS came along, people started using computers with MS-DOS, which was still coding, right? You wanted to edit a text, you had to type a line of code. And then Microsoft Windows and Macintosh arrived and suddenly the whole world could use computers. And that's what I mean is a holy grail is to create something that can be ubiquitous, right? And I see what we're doing as the next iteration of this. What Microsoft Windows, what Windows and Macintosh did was making using computers accessible to everyone. And they got to the point where now you literally have billions of people using computers every day, like an iPhone is a computer. We're trying to take it to the next level, which is enable billions of people to program computers regardless of their skill set. And after what has been done over the last couple of decades on making using computers easier, now it's the next phase is about programming them. I, I spent a bunch of time trying to learn how to code over the past couple of years. I've actually been using Bubble more over the past year or so for you know side projects or new things. And the way you talk about Bubble, you talk about it, the, the next layer of abstraction above programming, that's sort of just like the next logical step. And so for example, if I was learning React, you know, which has a ton of abstraction and even right. someone who isn't an engineer can pick up React relatively quickly, Bubble is really just one more step beyond that. Yeah, exactly. And we hear still today, less today than before, but we hear a ton of skepticism from engineers and web developers. It's a common thing. What I tell them is that Bubble is actually much closer to JavaScript, jQuery, or React than it is to, uh, than those things are to assembly language, you know, like JavaScript to assembly language. It's just because the medium is different that people see that as a breakthrough, but it's actually pretty close to React. It's just the interface, instead of using a keyboard, you use a mouse and a screen. That's the only difference. But yes, the, the no-code denomination, I'm not going to fight it because it's pretty convenient to be in a space that turns out has a lot of traction currently. And so it's great to be seen as one of the leaders of the space. It's a little bit misleading though. I think no-code assumes that there's no code at all, which is not true. Bubble, you can extend the platform with code if something is missing. In fact, it's one of the most important things that we've decided from the very beginning is that to create something that can be extended which actually makes us different from pretty much all the other no-code tools. So I don't really like that denomination. And then it's a little bit blurry because some people define no-code as anything that doesn't have code is no-code. But if you go that way, then it's going to be a lot of things. You know, Microsoft Word is going to be no-code. But yes, I very much prefer describing what we do as a high level of abstraction. That's exactly that. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the overall no-code landscape. It's clear that there's sort of a moment right now for no-code. Like it's, it's clearly exploded even before everyone was sent to work from home and was tinkering yep. with projects. I think this predates that. From your perspective, why is that? Why is no-code having its moment right now? I think it's a combination of two things. The first, the first one is that tools got better. Like the, the, the promise that we're making, which is, you know, you can create anything without code. There is, it's, it's a very hard problem to solve because we're not the first one to try to do this. People have tried to do this for decades. Like micro, I could give you five names of products that Microsoft launches in the 90s and the 80s to try to do this. And they, didn't, they hadn't succeeded yet because in 2012, people were still learning how to code and even today, right? So it's a hard problem. Took some time to get to a product that is good enough so that people actually believe it and start using it. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that happened, happened, I think, is 2012, was, 2012, 2014 was kind of the peak of, you know, everyone will learn how to code. It was kind of, I mean, now the world is different, but in 2012, Mark Zuckerberg was like a huge star and, you know, he started coding at 19. 
hack something together and then becomes this like super successful person. And so we had all those boot camps in New York, you know, you have like General Assembly, Flatiron School, all those kind of like coding boot camps. And so people believed that at first, and then they tried it, they went to those boot camps and they realized that some succeeded and found jobs, but a lot of them actually learned, I guess, some coding skills, but it was not for them. And they did not end up having skills that were useful to build a product. And so I'm not gonna say that those boot camps were a scam, but people were certainly disappointed after a few years. And I think in 2017, 2018, suddenly you started hearing less that coding was so important because people started realizing that it was not working. It's not for everyone. I mean, I code a lot, but it's very tedious and it's not for everyone. You need, you need some kind of you know, persistence in front of you know, a line of code that is buggy that not everyone wants to do and has. And so I think the conjunction of those two things to tools getting much better and people realizing that t telling everyone to learn how to code is not the, rest, the answer to uh, the problem we're trying to solve at that point, which is enable people to create things, made no code happen. And then COVID turns out that no code tools and Bubble in particular take some time to learn. That's something, you know, there is a learning curve. We embrace that fact, but it's very cheap compared to building things with engineers. And during COVID times, people had a lot of time on their hand because you know, there was not much to do outside of the house. And people started to be very cash sensitive, whether personally or as businesses. And that was a perfect thing for NoCo to explode. I guess what it makes me wonder is, maybe just from a target user perspective, right? You've talked a lot about people who are, whatever designation you use, they're, maybe they're not building stuff today and they want to start building stuff. And so their decision is, do I learn how to code or do I use a different tool like Bubble or maybe others? And so that's one maybe potential user that you could target. Then the other user is actually somebody who knows how to code and might still consider Bubble as an alternative to picking up their you know, Visual Studio and starting a project from scratch. Talk me through those two different users and how you think about them. When we started, we were very clear. We're gonna go for the non-technical people, the non-developers. The reason for that is when you create something like Bubble by definition, because it's a higher level of abstraction as you put it, you're going to have some limitations. And still today, Bubble is going to be more limited than code. And if you go, but now we've removed a lot of those limitations. But back in 2012, 2013, you had a ton of limitations because it took some time to build all the features. And during that time, you want to go for non-technical people because non-technical people had no alternative. And so if you go to someone that has no alternatives, they're not going to see the limitations first. They're going to see if you have like, two features and then 90 limit, 98 limitations, they're gonna see the two features because the alternative for them is nothing, right? They can't do anything. If you go to an engineer, they will see the limitations first. And so you don't want to have, you want to go for users that will be excited about your product in spite of the early development phase that you're in. Mm -hmm. Today, that has changed a lot because now that we have exposed the public API so that people can add things with code if needed, the platform works better, is more scalable. You can build plugins with code. As I said, that's why I'm not a fan of the no-code denomination. All those things make it much more interesting for engineers. And now our pitch to engineers is to tell them, don't spend you know, all the hours it takes to reinvent the wheel constantly to build projects, you know, like setting up like the account management system, the database, all those things that are quite commoditized, but still take some time to build if you write code, just use Bubble for that and then only focus on what's new for your application. So only write code when it's actually needed and you can ship your project much faster. So are you seeing traction with software engineers? 
We do. That said, non-coders, like non-technical people are still probably 90% of our user base today. What can you still not do in Bubble today? Is a question with or without code? Because if you actually ask me what can you do today, uh, it is impossible to do in Bubble. The fact that you can add code, then my response, is, response will basically be nothing. Because you can always, it might not be perfect, you might have to find some workarounds, but you can always write uh, client-side code that behaves like an element or an action or server-side code that behaves like an action that we were in an AWS Lambda. So there's not much limitation you can do there. Now, there are things that Bubble is not great at. So for instance, let's say you want to build a platform game, like a Flappy Bird, you know, these kind of mm -hmm. things in, in the browser. You could hand-code an element like that with JavaScript and, you know, stick it into a Bubble app. But honesty here commands me to tell you, this is not a great use case of Bubble. You can do it, but honestly, you might as well just build it with code from scratch. Related to that, I think one thing a lot of people say when they're considering, you know, they, they, they may say, even if they're aware of like Bubble or Webflow or a similar tool, I know Webflow is very different, but people say, well, you know, Bubble would be great to maybe for like an MVP, right? We'll validate our idea using Bubble, but eventually you're going to graduate from Bubble and we'll build a real product, quote unquote. People say that a lot. And I, I, I'm assuming that that annoys you possibly as well, but I'm just curious to hear your reaction to that. It's okay. I don't mind it. I mean, they're honestly, they're wrong because you can definitely scale on top of us, but if they come in with the mindset that you can, they will have to migrate of us, if that eases the path for them to start <laughs> using us, then I'm fine with that, you know. At the end of the day, what they will realize is recreating everything that they've built on Bubble with engineers is gonna take them five times the time and five times more money, and at some point they will give up. Would you ever recommend anyone to leave Bubble and go find another tool? Like, is there any, any case where that would be true? Yes, like today, for instance, we, we're not HIPAA compliant. So if you're building something that processes patient medical data, well, don't build it on us, it's illegal. Mm -hmm. you know, it, so there are compliance cases. It's mostly for that reason that I would say people might consider leaving. We've seen situations where it's a large company is using us, someone like, an analyst using us because he uses us for side projects. And then, you know, at some point the company wants to use it and they want to have the program running on their own servers. Well, mm -hmm. we don't offer that, sorry. But otherwise, not really, no. How big could Bubble be? Because to me, to me, the scope seems to be very ambitious. It's a full stack, a full stack thing, right? I think every other tool has picked a narrow use case and said, we're going to be, you know, landing pages or we're going to be databases. And you're, you're saying, no, we're going to do everything. Everything, um, right. Yeah. Th that was actually our pitch. Uh, so we bootstrapped for many years, but we fundraised last year, early last year, or actually early two years ago, actually two years ago, I guess. And we, the company went going as our lead. At some point, Josh said, and it came naturally, and it's not something we had prepared. And he said, other companies choose, exactly as you're saying, other companies choose one thing and they are a plus plus player in that little thing. We decided to be everything. Currently we are a B minus at everything and we're hoping we can be a B plus or A minus. And that actually, the, the founder of the fund started laughing. It was like, that's the most contrarian pitch I've ever heard. And then sending us a term sheet a, a day later. And that was actually the truth. Yes, we, our ambition is to be everything and we're not great run at anything. But we think that if we, the fact that we have such a comprehensive approach, integrating everything unlocks a ton of potential. And now currently we're just in the phase where it's about executing and becoming A plus at everything. And 
I think now we have the structure in place, the product is integrated. That was in some ways a hard part to get those different pieces together. Now they work, it's just increased the level across the board. So what that means today, we're writing how we do responsive pages because it's not great. We're rewriting how we do some queries in the database because it could be faster and we're improving there on each of those dimensions. How far can this go? Yes, I think, I think, this, I think Bubble can be, and I can't say it would be for sure. Obviously, I'm convinced. Otherwise, I would be doing something else. I think I'm pretty ambitious. But if it's not us, the people that will try to do what we do will get there. I think this can be one of the most important tech companies in the world because it's so fundamental. Like programming, creating software is so important today because that's where the value creation happens. That's where, you know, companies now create value by automating processes better. People that will be able to produce software at a very cheap cost, which fundamentally is what we are. One way to look at us is, you know, we enable non-technical people to build things. But another way to look at this is just to say something that used to cost like $100,000 in six months can be done for like five in four weeks. Reducing the cost of creating software will have a tremendous impact on the business world, which will turn the people that can do that properly into a massive company. Millions of businesses would love to have custom software and that is not accessible to them because it's too expensive. Currently, so many companies, mom and pop shops, like so many entities cannot have good software because it's too expensive to produce. Imagine how better their operations, I would almost say their lives could be personally, like the people who work there with better tools. Are you able to share any numbers around customers or anything like that that would just give us a sense for like where Bubble is today? I mean, we have a freemium model, so not everyone is paying, obviously. We have about like a little bit more than 700,000 people who've created an account so far on the Bubble platform. I think we're close to six or 700,000 apps also that have been created over the history of the company. And then applications on a custom domain, so that's the ones that are using us like seriously today and that fluctuates over time. I think we're about like eight to 10,000 right now. So we talked about the vision. We talked about the size of the opportunity, right? We think this is fairly large. I definitely agree with that. How, how do you think about the plan or the strategy to, to get there? Now we're very much in an execution mode. I think we've proven that it is possible to build things without code. We've proven that people get bubble. So now it's about just improving across the board and getting better. So what that means in practice is a couple of things. On the technical side, well, improve the key things that I think are holding us back currently which is a new UI because our UI is okay, but it's a little bit hard to grasp for some people and a better way to build responsive pages. Make sure that as apps scale on us, performance keeps being great. Because today, one of the challenges you have when you create a tool that's so open-ended as Bubble is that people will tend to build things in a way that is not necessarily optimized. And then they're gonna say, performance is not great. And so we have to try to find ways to optimize things behind the scene. So that's a technical front. On the support success front, it's you know better documentation and just keep the current level of support that we have and improve it. But it's pretty good so far. You know, people get a response within a couple of hours, so that's pretty good, I think. And the third thing is on the growth side. That's where we're the newest because one of the consequences of not raising around for many years is that we didn't have a growth function. And so now it's just about making sure we're hitting the opportunity as hard as we can because it is real. And so. A lot of things we're doing here from like traditional, you know, pet acquisition 
approaches, which do work now, was definitely not working. Another reason why we didn't raise money earlier, because that would have been a waste of money. But today, you can acquire users fairly profitably on those platforms because people are looking for, on Facebook and Google, because people are looking for NOCO tools. But also pushing hard on partnerships with schools, Yale, Stanford, you know, University of Notre Dame are all using us now as a teaching support for their courses. So trying to keep pushing there because I really think that prepares the future and push hard also on the current demo ecosystem because that's actually how we've been growing so far. We didn't have a growth function, but we had a community of users and they would themselves you know, start you know, doing freelance work for someone else. So we're trying to find a lot of ways to keep engaging our current users and making them part of our growth effort so that they can make money and overall the whole ecosystem get bigger, gets bigger. And so now, I mean, I could get into detail of what that entails, but basically pushing on those different things, which does take a lot of people. So two years ago, when we raised money, we were like eight people or nine people when we signed the term sheet. Now we are last year, exactly at that point, we we're like 18, today we're 35. I guess that we'll end the year around 60 or 65. I asked a few people who I know are users of Bubble as well, like if they had anything they would want me to ask you about. And, and the two things are the two re recurring things I heard was like, I guess everybody knows you're working on the new UI and the responsive thing and also performance. Anything you can tell us about when the new UI is dropping for, for all these users who really want it? We, we already have something live that we're testing, first of all, internally and a few couple of users. It's hard to keep. Timeline. I'm hoping yeah. this is within the next, you know, four, five months, we'll see. We certainly don't want to push anything that's not going to be great. Then the responsive engine, this one is a little bit different, actually. I don't know when it will go live because it's a pretty big project and we need to handle the legacy, which is not simple. But, but there is definitely, but we're, we're moving at pretty good speed on that one. And we have decided of an approach, which for the more technical audience that we have, that you have here, might be interesting to know that it's going to rely on CSS and Flexbox, which is something we were not doing initially, because when we built our first responsive engine, it was before Flexbox was mm. standard, which I think will improve greatly understanding why the behavior is this and performance, because we're going to rely on the browser much more than our own computation. But one, one thing to note is that we are going to keep the Ability to drag elements pretty much wherever you want, which what makes Bubble different from other tools like Webflow, which uh, some people love it, some people hate it. Designers tend to like the structure that Webflow puts in front of them. Non-designers, like business people, tend to like our approach, which is much more like PowerPoint, you know, where you can move things wherever you want. And I think it works much better if you build complex web applications because Webflow that does more like content management or e-commerce. It's a simpler design, like it's usually, you know, you don't have a ton of groups that are on top of each other and tabs and stuff like this. On Bubble, it's much more common. So we're going to keep doing this, but it's not a small project to make that happen. Both though should happen within the next six months, I hope. Last question on, on the strategy. So we, we talked about, you know, Bubble's unique in that it's trying to do everything that an, a developer or a person who's building a builder would want to, to do, right, in one app. And, and I'm just from a strategic perspective or planning perspective, like why is that important? Or why are you guys taking the approach of trying to get everything up to like a B plus A minus instead of picking like three or two use cases and saying like, we're gonna A plus those ones? It depends what you're trying to do. Uh, we, we want to be a general purpose programming platform, a platform where people can build anything because we think the massive opportunity that we are seeing that a lot of other, of other people are not seeing is what we call custom software, meaning 
it's not something that can be narrowed down as one use case. And if you want to do that, well, you need to be able to enable people to do anything. So you're not going to pick a use case. Just It's just different. It's just a different goal. If your goal is to build a better SaaS tool for restaurants to create webs, uh, websites for their restaurants, which was something recommended to me by an investor one day, I'm, you have great ways to do that. And you can probably make a ton of money with restaurants, especially now, you know, they need to be online. But great for the person that does that. It's just not what we're trying to do. We want to be a tool that is, again, as open as possible because fundamentally my true competition, what I'm trying to change is the fact that people use JavaScript to do things. Mm -hmm. JavaScript is open-ended. So you have to come up with something almost as open-ended as JavaScript. Otherwise, people are not going to use you. And not to say that some people have created tremendous businesses by picking one use case. So that was good. But no one has achieved, to, has, has achieved to try to do what we're trying to do, which is creating something generic, even though they wanted to do that at first. And so what we've seen in the past is people come in saying, okay, we're going to change how programming works, make it accessible, then they choose a use case. But it's really, really hard from that particular use case where you start making good money, you have users, you have start being known for that use case, and then expanding again. I just don't think it's possible. You have to keep being generalist, general purpose all the way. And that's why it's so slow. That's why, you know, Uber was started the same year Bubble was, and Uber is arguably much bigger than we are. Mm -hmm. It takes some time to get to something good enough so that people start using us. I consider that we go to the MVP phase, MVP stage, like a minimum viable product when we fundraise. So it was literally 2018. So it took us five to six years to get there. But now we paid that initial investment. We're kind of the only one, honestly, who have done this. The only team that was patient enough or stubborn enough to <laughs> go through that, however you want to put it. So now let's see how that goes. But I don't regret not picking a use case and trying to be acing it. Amazing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's sort of a very ambitious scope that you guys are biting off. And by nature of that ambition or just maybe like surface area, right? It's just a lot of stuff you have to do. It took years to get to the point where you could even raise a seed round, which is very unusual in this day, day and age. And that can definitely go a long way towards explaining like why you guys have this sort of unique positioning in the industry that you do, I think. Yep. Okay. Algolia developed a tool for, to add searches to your website, right? They decided, okay, we're going to do key-by-key key searches extremely well and extremely fast. And so they only do that, right? We do that at Bubble. You have, if you search by search thing, it's not going to be super fast because we have that, but we also have to make sure it works with our visual editor. You know, we have to make sure that, you know, you can also get data from an external API and it works as well. So us trying to combine all those different features together, you know, the bubble editor is not going to be as pretty as a web flow editor, for instance, because they spend all their time making it beautiful. We had other things to do. So that's where I'm saying where the others are A plus at one thing, we are B minus at everything that the product encompasses. Like the, the surface area of our product is much bigger than honestly 99% of the products out there like in right. the tech world. Is there even an analog for it in the non-no-code world? Do you have an like role model pro like company or product you look at? Microsoft Office is extremely okay. open and horizontal, but it's a, it's a 30 year franchise, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, not many actually. If this leads to a major company, 
coming out that's built on top of Bubble. I think that's kind of what everyone's waiting for to some extent is like the big unicorn or public company or something that might emerge that's been built on Bubble. And I think this is sort of a building block of how the product will develop to the point where it can support that. Yeah, I mean, it's a very long-term play because you need a lot of people on your platform to start having like a unicorn or something. But yes, it is pretty much what the bet is here. Today, more than half of the time spent by the engineering team is about making sure that the top performing apps on top of us by you know, any kind of metrics you can think of, you know, traffic, workflow runs, revenue, whatever, do better on us. Like we actually spend a lot of time for them because we want them to keep growing fast on us because I don't know if they will be the next unicorn, but you know, if someone gets acquired for hundred million dollars, it's, it's a huge win for us. The day we have a unicorn or like a very, very household name of a company built on top of us, you know, it's done. Like, you know, the, we'll have to keep up with the growth and make sure the, party. Yeah. <laughs> the, the servers don't crash, but the yeah. growth team can go to bed, you know? Makes sense. Okay, so I'm gonna experiment with a, a wrap-up question that I, I think makes sense. So if, if you look at the next, let's say five years, maybe 10 years, whatever time horizon, if Bubble were to reach the, all the potential that we talked about, like what would have turned out to be true? Or inversely, if we look back from that perspective and Bubble didn't reach, reach its potential, what, what would have turned out to be true in that case? Like what are sort of like the key assumptions? The key assumption that we have is that people are learn, willing to learn things if it gives them more power. And it's not an obvious one. A lot of people still think today that having a learning curve is a huge liability. I see that as an asset. People learning things, again, creates a community because then people help each other, puts you in schools, which is honestly the best place you want to be with any product. I mean, Facebook started in schools. Like, it's amazing to be a tool that people use in universities because it prepares your market for, and your user base for the next 10 years after that. So that, I think, comes down to this. From a technical standpoint, we probably will have some challenges to solve over the years, but I'm pretty sure we smart engineers uh, will figure it out. But fundamentally, yes, we're betting on the willingness of people to learn things, to be able to create exactly what they need and not... I don't personally believe in the world that they're going to be a SaaS tool for everything, which sounds, uh, it's actually fairly contrarian because a lot of people think differently on that one. The tech world so far, it's changing a little bit today, but the tech world used to believe and yeah, still does in many ways that they're going to be a SaaS for everything. And so that's why SaaS businesses are so valuable. SaaS businesses are valuable, but if you actually look in the detail of the, like the software development markets, uh, what we see is that custom software development grow, grows three times faster than the overall tech world, tech industry with all the SaaS tools and everything. Because customization for businesses and individuals and any kind of organizations is absolutely critical. And so uh, we'll see if it turns out to be true. I'm deeply convinced that, yeah, people want to learn things if they can do things with it. And people want customization for their digital tools. If we fail, there might be a lot of reasons getting in the way, but fundamentally, if we execute properly, but we don't become this massive company that I think we can get, that probably would be what went wrong. Uh, Emmanuel Strashnov, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of The Flywheel. Thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, I'd love to hear what you think about this episode and anything you'd like to hear more of in the future. You can find me on Twitter at, at JakeSingh underscore, which is J-A-K-E-S-I-N-G underscore. And don't forget to check out the flywheel at theflywheel.io.